Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 22nd, 2010. A lot on my mind. Much to do. (laughs) The heresy hurricane continues. Category 5. Wreaking destruction across the land. That's alright. We've got the rock. Jesus Christ. We proclaim him. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is just no shortage, no shortage whatsoever of crazy things being said about God out there across the landscape. And, uh, you know, from the Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, to Brian McLaren in his new book, to Doug Paget, Tony Jones, the emergence, uh, progressives, liberals, uh, yeah, it's a mess. So what do we do here at Fighting for the Faith? We help you to think biblically and to compare what people are saying in the, in the name of God to the Word of God. If somebody's making claims that are contrary to God's word, they're not helping you out one bit. They're actually driving you farther away from God rather than driving you to him. Okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Got a lot of stuff I want to do here today. <laughs> I have, I may have bitten off more than I can chew. We'll find out how big my mouth is. <sighs> I mean, bigger than most, unfortunately. Um, but uh, let's see here. Looking at the program, uh, number one, uh, real quick, uh, over the weekend on Saturday, uh, we had over 65 people sign up and attend our webinar on biblical authority, uh, constitution or uh, library, basically uh, laying groundwork for the biblical case for biblical authority and sola scriptura in light of what Brian McLaren is out there saying in his new book and, and on videos on the Internet. And um, I've already received emails from some people and asking the question, can we use your PowerPoint slides to teach our own adult Sunday school or whatever group that we want to teach? Absolutely. Please, 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 please. This is not my theology. This is not my doctrine. This is this theology and this doctrine belongs to the church. And uh, as a result of it, um, I would actually prefer if you would go ahead and take the slides, use them, and you don't even have to put my name on them. Why? Because this isn't about Chris Roseborough building his own theological empire. You know, the thing I'm not trying to do here 
is uh, get a a kind write up in Christianity Today with my face on Christianity Today. You know, years from now, saying the most influential theologian. And, oh, you know, who cares? That is not at all what I'm interested in. In fact, um, what I would really challenge y'all to do. Because there's a couple ways that you can do this. You can uh, you can take the audio that you know from the webinar and and the PDF document of the of the PowerPoint slides, and you can pass them off to a friend and say, "Oh, you've really got to hear this. You've really got to hear this." And here's the PowerPoint slides. It'll rock your world, or you know, it's, it's really insightful. Or you know, that's one way to do it. However, um, that. I actually, that's not the preferred method when it comes to this kind of stuff that I'd like you to pass it along. Let me explain. Um, by way of story, by way of illustration, by way of narrative, <clears throat> because I'm so cutting edge and, well, really I'm not. But anyway, um, so back maybe 10, was it 15 years ago now? Boy, am I getting old. Um, wow. Okay, this is going back, oh, 13 years ago. Okay. Uh, 13 years ago, uh, <laughs> the company I was working for wanted all of the, the its managers to be on the same uh, day planning time management system. And so they rounded us all up and sent us to a one-day uh, Franklin Covey time management uh, day planner seminar thing. It was useful. It, it, that's adding structure to somebody like me. Um is a challenge, but I thought it was very useful. But one of the things I thought that was fundamentally interesting about their approach is that they recommended that everybody who was learning their timekeeping system, in order for them to own this information, uh, the next step for them is to not just put it into practice, but to teach it to somebody else. Why? Because when you teach it, you own it. And so that's the idea here. And so I would challenge some of you out there that have the ability to teach and may not be uh, uh, so nervous about the the idea. Rather than passing along the audio of my webinar to other people, uh, don't even do that. Take some time to listen to it, read the slides, get to be familiar with what it is that the, uh, the case is uh, regarding biblical authority, and then teach somebody else. Teach it to somebody else because when you teach it, you own it. And I, in fact, I think that, you know, that would be the better way to go because, uh, you know, we need people who to get into the battle, if you would. And some of you have been sitting on the sidelines and you, you're thinking about getting into the battle. You're thinking about getting out there and, you know, getting your feet wet and, 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 you know, teaching sound doctrine and refuting false doctrine and things like that. But you, you know that you don't quite have enough experience. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you, this is a great way to get experience and to go out there and to, you know, to go from being a green troop to being a veteran is to get into the battle itself. And so uh, please, by all means, do so. I think it will be uh, beneficial not only to you, but to the greater body of Christ. And so take the time to teach other people and don't even feel like you need to give me credit. That's it's not it's not about Rosebro getting credit. It's about the kingdom of God, the gospel moving forward and uh, for other teachers to come up through the ranks who are also uh, capable of rightly handling God's word and to teach others. So please, by all means, take some time and to teach other people the stuff that uh, you learned. And when you do that, you'll own it as well. And not only that, you'll, because somebody will ask questions, you'll have to find the answers to those questions. And when you do, it'll it'll just help you even more. Okay, so today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I got an email from a gentleman by the name of uh, Mike, who is a former um, a member of Doug Paget's uh, youth group, and he heard uh, Doug Paget's sermon that we played on Friday night, the one that kind of left me speechless. 
And uh, he wants to chime in, and he has some interesting things to say. And uh, then we're, I'm going to begin a series of segments. Um, uh, it, it took me a few weeks to prepare the webinar that I taught on Saturday on biblical authority. And as I've been working through McLaren's book, uh, actually, this is probably the second or third time working through it at this point. One of the things I found is, is that there's some what we call low-hanging fruit in there. And that is is that some of the things that McLaren says doesn't require a full-blown biblical apologetic to refute it. You just need a little bit of common sense and logic. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin to, uh, you know, I'm going to do a few of these over the next week or two, uh, you know, going after some of the things McLaren says, just using common sense and logic. I mean, that's a, that's a standard part of discernment. So that'll, that we're going to do that. And then, um, and then we're going to do a segment called when you abandon sola scriptura, you exchange true doctrine and theology for utter foolishness. Got a, uh, man, got some audio from a couple of videos, uh, basically of some liberal emergent progressives answering this question. Are you ready? Here's the question. What did God do in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? I can think of several things right off the bat. Uh, you know, you know, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You know, passages like that. Um, well, here's the problem. Liberal emergent progressives, um, they've abandoned sola scriptura. And as a result of it, they, their theologians attempt to theologize without the Bible. And as a result of it, when you do that, you just come. What you, what ends up coming out of your mouth is complete subjective gobbledygook. And so we're going to be listening to some of those answers. And then our sermon review today uh, comes to us from Summit Church in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, preached by Pastor Pat Schatzline, and it's entitled "Talented but Dangerous." And I've picked this particular sermon uh, because what I want to do in this sermon review is is to uh, introduce. Uh, an understanding of inspiration that I have not discussed here at Fighting for the Faith, at least not gone into this depth. And something uh, I want to point out to you here, and this sermon really gives me the opportunity to talk a little bit more about the implications when we talk about God's Word being inspired. What does that mean? And then when we understand what that means... Uh, how should what does that mean in regards to these bad sermons that we're hearing? And so you're going this this is going to be an important topic. So he's going to be preaching from Matthew 25 on the parable of the talents, and uh, the Su- Summit Church is currently in the middle of a sermon series entitled uh, "Summits Got Talent." You know, like you know, America's got talent and Britain's got talent, but uh, now it's uh, Summit's got talent because they're so relevant. But uh, again, this will this will allow us to discuss a, a biblical inspiration, which I think is very important. So, uh, with that, we're going to dive into our program proper. Um, let's dive into our email. All right, Mike from the Twin Cities, that's in Minnesota. Uh, both of them. Now, if you say you're from Twin Cities, um. Does that mean you're from both Minneapolis and St. Paul, or are you in the no-man's land between the two cities? Just, you know, 
Anyway, uh, <laughs> Mike writes, he says, uh, Chris, I caught your radio show today on Pirate Christian Radio and also listened to your interview with Doug about the origins of the emergent church earlier today. First, I want to commend you for standing up for biblical truth, and your show uh, seems to be doing a great service to the gospel. It shows uh, like this that uh, it shows like this that refute false teaching and doctrine that draw believers into fellowship with God, not turn them away like many think. You know, Mike, I want to thank you for that point. And this is kind of by way of previewing kind of a little bit about the whole inspiration topic about that we're going to talk about in the uh, sermon review today. Um, sound biblical doctrine is true. Okay. It correctly reflects the thoughts that God has put into the scriptures. And when somebody refutes false teaching, these are false thoughts, false ideas about God, and instead supplants those false ideas with the real truth about God, sound doctrine, it does draw people closer to God. You can't draw people closer to God through lies. God is a God of truth, and he's revealed truth. And uh, idolatry is one of those things we have to be super careful about and so that we're not con- conveying false doctrine about God because you don't drive somebody closer to God through false teaching. It's impossible. That's like saying, uh, you know, the way that you uh, the way you cool the planet is by moving the earth closer to the sun. You know, that would you know, that doesn't make any sense. So um, thank you for pointing that out. OK, let's see here. Moving along in his email, he says, um, I can say without a doubt that my recent change of church venue to a church preaching Reformation theology and expository biblical teaching has drawn me into a far deeper fellowship with God and hunger for the word than any of the three previous evangelical churches I've attended or called my home. I grew up in the high school ministry with Doug Paget as my pastor. Now, listen carefully to this, because there's something I want to tell Mike at the end of this email. He says, I identify my date of conversion to believe in Jesus and to receive uh, the Holy Spirit to a retreat that Doug taught in 1992 and when I was a junior in high school. I can say with no hesitation that the dynamic, basic gospel message from Doug softened me to hearing it clearly for the first time in high school, even though I grew up. Uh, going to church every Sunday as a child from a multi-generational biological family of believers. I was actually at the Jesus Suffering talk that Doug did that you had on tonight. That was on Friday. He says, of all the talks that Doug did, this one has stuck with me in detail over the years, especially uh, reminded of it after the Passion of the Christ came out. All of the visual movements and motions and props were orchestrated to illustrate the point of Jesus suffering for us. There were a lot of teary-eyed people around that night. I was running the lights for the talk during uh, during college. You may have heard Doug uh, mention uh, for Mike to turn on the lights. It was a Wednesday night program called Hype. My friend and I were the sound and light guys. It, it was always a pretty decent production with a live band, video, and during the retreats, pretty good effects with lighting and even a smoke machine one year. <laughs> yeah, you can always tell when something's great because you have a smoke machine. Yeah. <clears throat> we had a very good time serving with the uh, youth ministry for a number of years at Wooddale and never considered the impacts of the uh, big productions we were putting on. Now I can put together some of the pieces with why Doug was so focused on being culturally relevant with the production of it all. All in total, I think we heard Doug speak slash preach for around six years, three in high school and another 
three or more serving with the uh, AV stuff d- uh, during college. I guess I, I only tell you this to help you understand that I knew Doug about as well as most folks serving with the youth ministry. From your commentary, it seems that you and Doug likely have a, f- a similar familiarity or friendship uh, with a different twist. Well, yeah, um, I've never known Doug as orthodox, and I've only known him as a heretic. I was thinking uh, this evening after hearing your response or loss for words, if I may say so. Yeah, you can, because that's really the right way of putting it. So that uh, you might have a bit better understanding from someone like me. You have known Doug as an emergent. I knew Doug as my pastor, a gospel preaching biblical truth teller from my point of view. Back then, there was a lot of biblical truth that he was preaching. He says, as I have learned or heard more about where Doug's theology or lack thereof has gone since he left Wooddale and subsequently starting Solomon's Porch, I have been drawn to try to understand it better recently. Part of this quest of mine has come from taking stock of my faith, how it began and what environment and what environmentally kept me or maybe held me back from seeking and hungering for God's word more before now other than just my own sin. I read Doug's book a couple of weeks ago and became even more confused with my conversion origin. We're going to talk about this here in a second, Mike. So hold that thought. Conversion origin. Hold those words. He says, but mostly with how the how Doug came to his conclusions. I mean, he lays it out pretty clearly in his book, but it so doesn't jive with his outer persona and teaching of the youth group. Well, don't get me wrong. Doug is, um, well... <laughs> Doug isn't the best of guys, but he never apologized for preaching the truth and his ramifications for failure to receive him. After reading the book, uh, Why Was the Word Truth Before? But Now It Was the Truth to, Only to Those Greek Folks or Their Culture, it de- but It Doesn't Apply the Same to Our Culture Today. He seems to be almost hinting that the manuscript changed due to uh, cultural changes between uh, when they were originally written uh, 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 and the time of Constantine. Come on. Yeah, he does. I might even still have some notes from a Bible study he taught in high school where he went through the apologetics of the Bible, historical and archaeological data, and talking about how it, ta- it takes more faith to uh, to not believe than it does to believe. Ah, all those memories just make me more discouraged and angry and confused. Your response after the suffering message today made me feel like uh, you may now begin to understand how I did and likely many other f- uh, former Wooddale youth after reading his book, knowing that he what he preached for so many uh, so many years ago, were utterly confused. How could a guy that historically teaches biblical truths transform into such a heretical monster? Um, I don't have the answer for you. I don't know, Mike. I don't know. I don't know if he was ever saved. I don't know if he was. I I just don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I can tell you this though: that Christian history has many. Many such stories of men who begin in the Orthodox Christian faith and wander off into myths and uh, heresy. And uh, the one thing that uh, I wanted to come back and circle back to not only tell you and give you encouragement, but also to those uh, former members of Doug's youth group, is that when you talk about uh, your conversion origin, Keep this in mind. Your the origin of your conversion to Christianity is does not rest upon Doug Paget. And you say, but, but he's the one who preached the gospel. Yeah, that's the point. It wasn't his gospel. It's Christ's gospel, and so it's a testimony to the power of the true 
biblical gospel. The foundation of your faith is not built on Doug Paget. The foundation of your faith is built on nobody else except for Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins. And that's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul makes in uh, in uh, Galatians chapter 1, when he says uh, to the, you know, you foolish Galatians, you know, who has bewitched you? And he says, even if we, that would be the Apostle Paul or any of the guys that were with Paul when the, the churches in Ephesus were planted, even if we or an angel from heaven should come and preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. And so the the, the origin of your conversion is the gospel presentation and Christ and him crucified for your sins. Doug did preach it very correctly and, and powerfully. And you talk about the fact that at that night, you know, there were people who had tears and they, you know, there was a lot of tears on the night that he preached that suffering sermon that has stuck with you for all these years. Um, That is more a testimony to the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in the word of God. Why? Because Jesus says that when he would send the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and unbelief. And so Doug Paget, by preaching the biblical gospel that night, the Holy Spirit worked to convict people of their sins and on their unbelief and called them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It was clearly taught. That being the case, what you heard was not Doug Paget's doing, it was Christ's doing. And so the foundation of your faith doesn't rest on Doug Paget, the man who has rejected Christianity. The foundation of your faith is in Jesus Christ, the one who is the same today, yesterday, and forever who died on the cross for your sins. And now what you do as a Christian, you pray for Doug Paget and pray that God grants him repentance, opens his eyes, and that he would repent of his sin and unbelief. Just the same way as those who heard the gospel preached from him all these years ago were confronted with their sin and unbelief and were brought to Christ and him crucified for their sins as the solution. We pray that for Doug. So I would encourage all of you out there, as tragic as this is, your faith was never built on Doug Paget. Your faith was always built on Christ. Always. And same here at Fighting for the Faith. If I decided that I was going to become a heretic tomorrow, you could ignore everything I said from, you know, from that moment on. But everything I've said up to this point that's in accord with with sound doctrine and Christ and him crucified for our sins, the biblical gospel, you could take it to the bank. Because it's not my truth. It's the truth revealed in Scripture. So, Mike, hang in there and pray for Doug and keep your eyes focused on the true foundation of your faith, Jesus Christ. All right, little little Brian McLaren here. I just think that's the best music for Brian McLaren. Okay, and uh, yeah, those of you, if you haven't heard my uh, 
the webinar. I did post it in the podcast. It's available at fightingforthefaith.com. Um, the webinar I did on Saturday, uh, this was 20, 20th, uh, yeah, on, uh, the biblical authority. Uh, I, I gave a full blown biblical, uh, doctrinal internal Bible presentation of the, of the authority of scripture. Now, that being the case, not everything that Brian McLaren says requires that level of, uh, of refutation. Some stuff, if you just know basic common logic and common sense, easy to refute. And uh, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to uh, talk ab- about uh, Brian McLaren's claim about uh, the Bible being like a graded math, like graded mathematics textbooks, and read to you what he has to say about that. And then I'm going to just give you, rather than give you a biblical answer, I'm just going to use common sense. Okay, so hold on here. I have in my hand uh, Brian McLaren's A New Kind of Christianity. It's really not a new kind of Christianity. It's just an old kind of liberal heresy. Uh, But I want to read from his book, uh, starting at page 98. uh, Chapter number 10, Is God Violent? I read. Okay, ready? Here we go. Uh, He says, McLaren says, I have to admit that there are problems in the Bible as library too. Real problems big problems in previous chapters we saw god as as the good creator in genesis as the compassionate liberator in exodus as the reconciling king and lover and father of all people in the prophets but as a serious reader of the bible i'm still a little uneasy because i know about some of the other images of god that are also found in the bible violent images cruel images unchristlike images now before i address my uneasiness about these images. I need to say again that nowhere in the Hebrew scriptures do I find anything as horrible as Theos. Who's Theos? Theos is the so-called Greek deity that apparently Christians have been worshiping for 2,000 years. We'll talk about that one later. Uh, Not today, but in another edition of Fighting for the Faith. He says, yes, I I find a character named God who sends a flood and destroys all humanity except for Noah's family. But that's almost trivial compared to a deity who tortures the greater part of humanity forever in infinite eternal conscious torment, a.k.a. hell. Uh, Three words that need to be read slowly and thoughtfully to feel their full import. Yes, I find a character named God who directs a band of nomadic former slaves to fight and claim uh, from more powerful nations a piece of land for themselves. But never does this God direct them to expand their borders or brutally conquer and occupy weaker nations and to create a global totalitarian regime through slavery and genocide, as Theos, uh, Zeus Jupiter, likes to do. Yes, I I find a character named God who does a a bit of smiting, but those who are smitten are simply smitten and then buried, and that's it. (laughs) Hang on a second here. They are not they are not shamed and tortured for a while by the godly before the death before death and then shamed and tortured by God after death forever and ever without end. Now I am in no way interested in excusing or defending divine smiting genocidal conquest or global quasi genocidal geocidal flooding. I am just saying that even if these if these are the crimes of Elohim, the Lord, they are far less serious crimes than those of Theos. Okay, now real quick, I just <laughs> read to you two paragraphs from McLaren's book. Okay, two things. 
you, I could point out immediately just using simple logic here. Okay, notice what McLaren is doing here. He's basically saying that in the Bible that the God Elohim or Yahweh does commit crimes. He says that. Says, I'm just saying that even if these are the crimes of Elohim, they are far less serious crimes than those of Theos. So, uh, so he's basically making the claim that okay, in the Bible, there's some really some some unsavory things that we don't like, you know. But yeah, there's some smiting going on, and yeah, the, 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 there's a there's a flood thing, and. And uh, and yes, there's a genocidal conquest where where Elohim Yahweh tells the children of Israel to kill everything, you know, man, woman, child, infant, animal, you know, um, pet dogs, uh, cats, all everything. Not leave nothing alive. So yeah, yeah, but th- those are crimes. But they're they're less serious crimes than Theos. You see, because Theos is is, is the inventor in McLaren's mind of of the the idea of hell. Eternal conscious punishment, okay? But that's okay because th- even though there's some things written in the Bible that's, you know, where Elohim has committed some crimes too, they're not as bad as they are. Now, try this one out. We're going to just use common logic here. Try this one out. Um, you, you imagine, well, I'm not going to suggest you try it out because, but uh, let's let's say, okay, Jeffrey Dahmer. We all remember him, the guy who used to uh, eat people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, could you imagine Jeffrey Dahmer making this claim? Now, listen, listen. I understand cannibalism. Yeah, it's 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 it might be a crime, but it's not as bad of a crime as what Hitler did. You see, so it's okay because all I didn't even torture these people. All I did was kill them and eat them. That's it. I mean, they were alive one minute. Next thing you know, they were dead. And you know they didn't feel me barbecuing them. They didn't feel me cooking them in a pot. You see, I I I humanely killed my uh, uh, killed these people before I ate them. And and see, you know, if when you compare it to Hitler, I mean, what did Hitler do? I mean, when he murdered people, he put them in concentration camps and starved and tortured them. And you see, so compared to what Hitler, my crimes compared to Hitler, pff, they're nothing. Therefore, I'm innocent. It doesn't make any sense at all. So on the one hand, he admits that in the Bible, there's some unsavory things about spoken about God that he doesn't like. And they might be crimes, but they're not nearly as bad as the crimes of Theos. This is kind of a, uh, a morally, uh, a sliding scale morally uh, when it comes to you know, how McLaren judges God. But see, God is not to be judged. God is the judge, and his judgments are just. Notice that at this point, McLaren has made it clear that in the Bible, Elohim commits crimes. Well, McLaren, if you think that Elohim has committed crimes, then you need to bring God up on those charges, don't you think? Rather than excusing them and winking at them, and basically saying, yeah, there's a good bit of smiting, but those who are smitten are simply smitten and then buried. I mean, if Hitler, rather than torturing people, just killed them and buried them, rather than torturing them, would that have made it any better? 
No, not at all. It still would have been murder. But God does not murder, by the way. Okay, here. So here we go. Well, let me continue here. Just applying basic logic to McLaren's uh, ideas here. Many, perhaps most, perhaps all of the uh, of all the disturbing deeds of God in the Bible look very different in the light of our response. Uh, responses to the first two questions in our quest. In my own experience as a lover and reader of the Bible, no, he's a hater of it, as I am uh, freed from the literalistic and dualistic straitjacket in in which the Greco-Roman and constitutional approaches constrain me, I feel I can breathe a little freer and I begin to notice things that had uh, that had been there all along, but I had been trained to ignore. Most notably, I begin to see how our ancestors' image and understandings of God continually changed, evolved, and matured over the centuries. God, it seemed, kept initiating this evolution. So why does the Old Testament contain things about God that that seem criminal? Well, it's because not because God's really that way. It's just because the people who wrote the Bible really had a misunderstanding about God because they were immature. That's the the basis of his thesis. Now, moving ahead to uh, page 102, yeah, in the you know, b- between these two quotes, he basically outlines five different ways in which he thinks that there's an evolution uh, thing going on here. But let me read. Uh, let's see here. He says, I hope you can see what I'm saying here. Uh, actually, page 103. Uh, and what I'm not saying, I'm I'm not saying that the Bible is free of passages that depict God as competitive, superficially exacting, exclusive, deterministic, and violent. See, apparently, you know, this is just a misunderstanding, though. But neither am I saying that those passages are the last word. Well, on, on, on the character of God, I am not saying that the Bible reveals a process of evolution within God's actual character, as if God used to be rather adolescent but has taken a turn for the better and is growing up nicely over the last few centuries. I am saying that the that, that human beings can't do better than their very best at any given moment to communicate about God as they understand God and that scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings about God. So it's it's not that God was really genocidal or was really into smiting people. That that was just God's best, you know, that was man's best attempt at understanding God. So as human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each new vision is faithfully preserved in Scripture like fossils in, in layers of sediment. If, if we read the Bible as a cultural library rather than as a constitution, if we don't impose a Greco-Roman plot line in the biblical narrative, we're free to learn from that evolutionary process, and we might even add to participate in it. An analogy may be helpful in seeing what this idea of progressive understandings means. Consider the Bible as a collection of math textbooks. There's a first grade text, a second grade text, and so on, all the way up to high school texts that deal with geometry, algebra, trigonometry, maybe even calculus. Imagine opening the second grade text and reading this. Hang on. Um, a sentence about subtraction. You cannot subtract a larger number from a smaller number. And then you open a sixth grade text and you see a chapter entitled Negative Numbers. The first sentence reads, this chapter will teach you how to subtract larger numbers from smaller numbers. How do we reconcile the statements? Where are the authors of the second grade text lying? Or were the authors of the sixth grade text relativists? Well, doubt... Uh, doubting the absolute truth of the earlier text? Well, it's not that simple. The author of the second grade text told the truth that was appropriate for second graders. 
if the second graders had to be had to learn subtraction of both positive and negative numbers, they would be overwhelmed. So experts in math education have determined an order of operation, a set of skills that need to be mastered in a sensible order, addition before subtraction, subtra subtraction before multiplication, multiplication before division, positive numbers before negative numbers, uh, solving for single variables before solving for multiple variables, and so on. And now this is what we call deconstruction. What you're going to hear here is a deconstruction. You can always tell when McLaren's doing deconstruction because he always starts his sentences with what if. He's trying to cause you to doubt now what the Bible says. He says, what if something similar must, uh, must happen in theological ed education of the human race? What if people who live in the second grade world of polytheism need to learn about one God as superior to others before they can handle the idea of one God as un uh, uniquely real? What if, in order to properly understand God's concern for social justice, they must first have a concept of God being pleased or displeased? That concept can be only, uh, only be developed through the visceral reflexes of cleanliness and revulsion, which are in turn reinforced through ceremonial rules and taboos. What if the best way to create a global solidarity is by first creating tribal solidarity and then gradually teaching tribes to extend their tribal solidarity to others? You see what he's doing here? Okay, let me, using simple logic here. Here's the deal, okay? McLaren has already, in his own words, made it clear that he thinks that, uh, you know, Elohim, uh, Yahweh, uh, the Lord in the Old Testament, has committed some crimes. And he justifies those crimes by basically saying, well, at least they weren't done imperialistically, or at least there wasn't any torture involved. He, they were just, they just killed everybody. Okay, he's already said that. Okay, so what he's trying to do, he's not trying to build off of what the Old Testament says. He's trying to find a way to reject it. Therefore, his metaphor about mathematics textbooks doesn't make any sense. Why? Because as somebody who's gone through the first grade all the way up to uh, senior year in high school and beyond... I can tell you this, in all of my math classes, the things I learned in first grade, I've never rejected them. Never once have I rejected 1 plus 1 equals 2. In fact, 1 plus 1 equals 2, and the, and the basic times tables and division and stuff like that are all fundamentals that have to be mastered, embraced, and held on to in order to move up to algebra, trigonometry, trigonometry and calculus calculus is not a is not a new form of mathematics that rejects the basic forms that you learn in grammar school instead calculus is a much more advanced pushing into math and taking it to a whole nother level and building uh, building the mathematical tower if you would high upon the foundation laid in the gra in the grammars in the grammar school okay you can't take 1 plus 1 and all that kind of stuff and throw it out what mclaren is trying to do is build a metaphor that basically allows for him to look at an old picture of god and say oh that's not true we have a better more clear understanding but that's not the same as what as as what we learn in mathematics we never reject 1 plus 1 equals 2 or 3 times 3 equals whatever. You understand what I'm saying? We don't throw those things away.
we build on them. McLaren's idea has us throwing out that other revealed truth about God to embrace a new truth and basically look back and go, oh, yeah, that old idea about God, how silly that thing was. Well, we don't do that when we get to calculus. We don't sit there and go, oh, come on, one plus one equals two. Nobody believes that stuff anymore. You see the difference? His metaphor, when you take it to its logical conclusion, doesn't make any sense when you just apply basic logic and common sense. It doesn't hold true in real life. Therefore, it cannot possibly hold true in his biblical metaphor and analogy. He's engaging in logical obfuscation. That's one of the reasons it should be rejected. All right, we ran a little bit long on our first segment. Uh, if you'd like to email me regarding uh, what you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, when you abandon Sola Scriptura, you exchange true doctrine and theology for utter foolishness. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Padgett in left field. But wait! Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing. 
Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Morning, emergent gook chucked out daily in the trash here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon your generous financial contributions and partnering with us in order to continue to bring this radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, click on one of the uh, friendly uh, buttons that we have on our homepage, and there's two of them there. One says, join our crew. The other says, uh, donate. And uh, the join our crew, when you click on that one, what we're, we're, in fact, may, we, uh, <clears throat> may I strongly suggest that that's the one that you go to, and the reason why is because it's only $6.95 a month to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. When you join, you get access to our cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's Word, Christ-centered theology, and apologetics. Good, good stuff, uh, this treasure trove that we have in our cove. Um, but uh, when we get to a 1,000 listeners, and what happens is, is that ensures that uh, we're able to pay all of our bills on a monthly basis. Kind of important. Uh, we don't have the ability to go into debt, and so we, you know, we work on a cash basis here at Fighting for the Faith, and uh, and so to continue bringing the program to you, we gotta have, we gotta take in what we're spending. Does that make sense? Yeah, just staying on budget is simple stuff. And if you want to figure out what our annual budget is, real simple, take six dollars and ninety five cents, and using the mathematics that you learned in grade school, that you shouldn't reject, by the way, take six ninety five. And multiply it times 1,000. 
and then take that number and multiply it times 12, and it'll let you know how much it costs to run Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio on an annual basis, at least for this year. Plain and simple. As And as you can figure out if you did the math, um, unlike Ed Young, <laughs> we <laughs> we don't have an airplane, so... <laughs> I don't know why I brought that up. Anyway, so just what that, that'll let you know. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, donate a, a set amount that you would like to set, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, this next segment is entitled, um, When You Abandon Sola Scriptura, You Extreme Exchange True Doctrine and Theology for Utter Foolishness. Okay, here's the deal. Okay, have any of you all out there met God? Um, have you any of you met Jesus? I mean, face to face, sat down, you know, had a conversation with him at the end, shook hands. Maybe you enjoyed a, a, a you know, a, a, a coffee with him at Starbucks. Uh, maybe you went hang gliding with him or, um, you went, uh, you climbed Mount Everest with him. I, I, I haven't yet, I have yet to actually meet Jesus face to face. Haven't met him yet. I will. All of us will. Um, I haven't met him yet. So I don't know really anything much about him except for what I learned from those who were with him. Okay. Jesus called 12 disciples. Now, one of them betrayed him and he was replaced with with Matthias. Okay. And what we have in the scriptures, what we have in the New Testament, uh, in the gospels, we have two eyewitness biographies. One was compiled interviewing eyewitnesses in the gospel of Mark more than likely was the preaching notes of the apostle Peter. So there's an eyewitness testimony component to it, but you have to have that little asterisk there, you know, to say that, you know, that's a little bit debated and you have to understand the nature of what it means there. Okay. So, um, those are the guys who hung out with Jesus were his disciples. Okay. And they also in the apostle Paul, by the way, he is a, an apostle untimely born and he is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ because Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And we also learn from the apostle Paul that Paul didn't learn his gospel from other guys. He actually learned it from Jesus himself. So G, uh, Paul is taught by Jesus as well. That being the case, those guys are the supreme authorities when it comes to what Jesus taught, what the gospel is, and sound theology. If we're gonna make, if we're gonna ask any questions about Jesus, we've got to go to what those guys said because what you and I might think about it would be just kind of silly speculation, don't you think? I mean, if somebody came to me and says, "Hey, Chris, uh, do you th- what do you think that uh, Jesus?" Uh, you know, uh, preferred uh, Greek salad dressing uh, to uh, uh, to Caesar salad dressing. I mean, isn't the gospel that uh, G- Jesus is Lord, not Caesar? Therefore, if Jesus liked Greek vinaigrette rather than Caesar dressing, and <laughs> I know it sounds stupid. I just work with me for a second. Uh, the next thing out of my mouth needs to be salad dressing is not a topic of discussion that comes up from those who hung out with Jesus. Therefore, I don't know if Jesus likes Caesar's uh, Caesar dressing or Greek vinaigrette. I just don't know. And uh, and also that's kind of anachronistic, but that's a different story. But you see what I'm saying? So when some, when you ask a theologian a question about Christ, what they need to do is say, let's open the text of the scriptures and look at what it says in answer to that question. Plain and simple. Okay. If they don't do that and they instead start 
burbling up ideas from within their their theologizing ego from deep within their heart. They're not giving you anything that's relevant or useful or even truthful about Jesus, which, by the way, is exactly what happens to emergent and uh, progressive types uh, because they reject sola scriptura, don't trust the word of God, constantly are deconstructing it, uh, attacking it, uh, you know, basically criticizing it. They cut themselves off from sound doctrine and sound theology, but they have no problem maintaining the title theologian, even though they don't speak from the Bible. Let me give you an example of this. Um, this what you're going to hear now as audio from videos... Uh, from a video, we'll do one today, of uh, of progressive and emergent and liberal theologians answering the question, what did God do in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? Now, this is a decent question. It's a great question. But listen to these answers. Well, uh, I think... This is Don DeVries of Union Theological Seminary. Um, well, um, 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 I think, yeah, that's the wrong answer, Don, already. You should, the Bible says that should be the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Christians uh, have historically uh, asked that question um, uh, in many different ways, but uh, um, I think in principle we want to say that um, um, Christ has offered us possibilities uh, of existence that were Christ has offered us opportunity of an existence. Where does it say that in the New Testament, Dawn? We're not there um, before his um, uh, appearance uh, on earth um, and how he does that and, and uh, how precisely they're mediated to us. I think different theologians uh, would argue in different ways. Um, but um, uh, there's something about um, uh, the way that um, Christ relates both to us as a human being uh, and to God uh, in some sense as a, a mediator of the divine life. Some sense in which he's kind of sort of the mediator of the divine life. Uh, which of the apostles in the New Testament taught about the, quote, divine life? Don? Um, that opens up new possibilities of existence for us. The divine life that opens up new possibilities of existence for us. Uh, Don, I, I understand that you teach at a liberal um, seminary, Union Theological Seminary. Um, could you point any of these things out for us from the Bible, you know, from the guys who hung out with Jesus. I think that they could be trusted, don't you think? That's going to be a longer answer than you want from me. Now, this is Glenn Stassen from Fuller Theological Seminary. Again, keep in mind the question on the table being asked of these liberal progressive uh, emergent theologians is what did God do in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? Because I'm working on this new understanding of the atonement called the incarnational theory of the atonement. Uh -huh. I think our problem... Oh, that's so great, Glenn. I'm so glad you're working on a new theory of the atonement. Just what we need. The problem is not just we have to be forgiven for some past guilt. Uh, that part's true, yes. But also shame. 
In shame, we hide from others. There was this great interview by Tavis Smiley uh, of Mickey Rourke, um, who, you know, destroyed his career uh, really badly. Um, and then now he's been re resurrected, really, through therapy and stuff and, and got the Academy Award nomination for The Wrestler. Um, and he, Mickey Rourke said that he, he, he just developed toughness. He developed armor around himself, closed himself off. Right, yeah, through therapy he learned toughness, toughness. Where's this toughness taught in the Bible, uh, Glenn? And is this a key component of your so-called incarnational theory of the atonement? that the church has lived without for 2,000 years. People. And how he dealt with his shame was to be tough. And he became, his wife left him, his, he couldn't get any more work, everything left him. Um, and then through therapy, uh, the therapist entered into his life. That's what Jesus does for us. Enters into the midst of our life, um, right where we are, and um, brings us into community. Um, uh, where, where does it teach this in the Bible, Glenn? You are a theologian, right? How could you be a theologian if you're kind of freewheeling it when it comes to theology? Overcomes that alienation and brings us into community with God in Christ. Um, and also our problem is the injustice and the cruelty and the violence we do. And so God in Christ confronts our violence and our injustice. Okay, which of the apostles taught about Christ confronting our violence and injustice? What do you mean by that? And calls us to repentance uh, and to change. This is what God does for us in Christ, in my understanding of the atonement. And we couldn't do this for ourselves? Um, and, and, and that's not something I do for myself. That's what God does in Christ. And do you have any clear passages for this? These guys are theologians, and they're telling you about something that Christ, that God did in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves, and... Is any of this making sense to you guys? Well, they're not a really big guy. This is Doug uh, Atati from Davidson College. Listen carefully to this one. Uh, it sounds Christianish at the front end. Wait to hear what he says uh, Jesus was doing on the cross. I'll, I'll play this one with few interruptions. Uh, a theological question and an important one. Uh, I suppose that a number of people would say, I would say uh, um, a couple of things. Uh, one is that for the Christian community, uh, Jesus Christ displays the reality of God. And apparently... For the Christian community, Jesus displays the reality of God. Makes you wonder, I mean, when he kind of couches it in those terms, who displays the reality of God for the Buddhists or the Muslims? Apparently, we're not always too able to do that for ourselves because we mess it up a lot. Uh, probably part of the time what we do is we try and think of God as simply a bigger version of what we already value or like. Uh, maybe a bigger uh, God is, uh, is, is, like, is, is powerful but even more powerful than I am, or God protects all of the things that I already value, uh, my own pet projects, uh, my own purposes. I don't know, the God of parking, for example. You know, people pray for that sort of thing once in a while to get a parking space. Or, or for Notre Dame to win a football game, and actually, I guess, in recent years, that's increasingly important to pray for them to win. Uh, but in any case, I, you know, one thing you could say is that human beings sometimes don't do such a hot job of Im imaging God. And Jesus Christ turns out to be a big help, huh? In that way, you could say... So Jesus is a big help in helping us image God. Which of the apostles in their epistles 
or which of the parables written by the apostles, you know, the, of the teachings of Jesus, taught about the importance of imaging God. And that that was the thing that God was doing in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves. Maybe Revelation is just a big help. And uh, what sort of picture of God that you get? Do you get? Well, God turns out to be the creator of heaven and earth. Uh, the great God of God creates and bears all things. And that God is shown to also be the good God of grace who redeems. Now, this sounds Christianish, but wait a second. Wait till you get more of the details. Don't get excited. And that's a fundamental point, then, in Jesus Christ, that the great God of glory who creates and bears all things is the good God of grace who redeems, and that is demonstrated in Jesus Christ in a way that... Demonstrated? Redemption is demonstrated. ...persons uh, often do not do such a great job of demonstrating to themselves. Another thing that happens is there's a picture of what uh, a true human life is like. Oh, yeah, see, that, yeah, because, yeah, we couldn't do that ourselves. So God had to show us, give us a picture of what a true human life looks like. Why couldn't we do that ourselves? This does not really mean that you need to dress like Jesus or grow your hair like Jesus or perhaps eat the same menu and that sort of thing. I don't think that means that at all. But it does mean that there's a certain kind of a shape or a pattern. And the shape or pattern there is someone who is oriented toward God and oriented toward others uh, and not simply focused on his, his own self all the time and his own isolated good. So, so Jesus, God was in Christ showing us how to orient ourselves towards both God and others. That's a big challenge for human beings. That's, that's, a, that's a, a tough standard. It's one that no one probably lives up to on a consistent basis all the time. Yeah, not as tough as the Ten Commandments. You ought to try that one on. But it's presented there. So you not only have a big help in imaging God, you've got a big help in imaging what human beings are and ought to be like, even though very often they fail to be that way. Uh -huh. And you call yourself a theologian. Why again? So that's another big thing that you've got that, uh, that God does in Jesus Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves. And I suppose the last thing is I'm enough of a traditional theologian to think there's a reason why you've got those crucifixion sequences in the Gospels. Okay, now, he says he's enough of a traditional theologian. Well, let's find out if his ideas regarding traditional theology are um biblical or traditional you ever think about it a gospel is a pretty odd kind of literature most biographies don't spend you know uh, up to a third or uh, a third of their uh, uh, of their space on how you die but the gospels do and so i think one of the things you can ask about is what's the meaning of that and i think part of the meaning of that is that the gospel also uh, furnishes us with the right nightmares it blesses what the gospel provides us with the right nightmares? Where in the Bible does it say we need good or correct or right nightmares? Us with the right nightmare. And the, the right nightmare is that uh, the one who uh, lives for others ends up dying for, quote, our sins, which I take to mean simply dying because of our sins. That is, our sins make them die. Oh, okay. So when it says in the Bible, Jesus died for our sins, that means that it's because we were the ones guilty of killing him, not because he was atoning for our sins, propitiating God's wrath or anything like that. No, it was, he was just dying for our sins. That means that he died because we were evil and wicked and we killed him. <sighs> Seriously. 
Seriously. You know, with this kind of mentality, I mean, this is complete and utter foolishness. If somebody calls themselves a theologian, they should be teaching words from God. These guys have rejected the biblical teaching. I mean, saying these guys are theologians would be like saying these two guys are... In the 30s, Laurel and Hardy were the kings of comedy. Then, Abbott and Costello took the 40s and split their sides with laughter. The 50s went hysterical and broke up to the wild antics of Martin and Lewis. In the great tradition of these laugh masters of the past come two guys who are hysterically funny. They're Cheech and Chong, the comedy team that gave birth to rock comedy and in the process turned on a whole generation. Now it's time for the Cheech and Chong movie, Up in Smoke. Seriously, I mean, just take a big bong hit for Jesus and then whatever comes to your mind, that's now theology. So what do you think God was doing in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? Well, I totally think like, man, like, you know, God was like imaging himself, you know, for us so that, you know, could that we could, you know, rectify the reconciling of the incarnational dude. Seriously. What we're hearing is such gobbledygook, it could potentially have come from somebody actually engaging in the use of illegal narcotics and have had some kind of weird out-of-body experience. This isn't information that's coming from the Bible. This is information that's coming from these guys' bizarro own egos. And it may, in fact, be drug-induced. Uh, and I think that is the right nightmare. It's a transferable nightmare, too. Uh, you can look to other things in this world and ask, how is it that the innocent suffer because of the sins of the guilty? And how is it that I am complicit in the sins of the guilty? And I think that's a powerful, powerful thing that's also present in the gospel. So three things. Uh, in Jesus Christ, God helps us to image God in ways that we are not successfully able to do ourselves uh-huh. as the great God of glory who creates all things and the good God of grace who redeems and is faithful. And second... Uh, presents a standard for human life, which is love of God and neighbor, oriented toward God and neighbor, a standard that we don't always present so clearly ourselves. And then a third presents us helpfully and and blessedly with the right nightmare. Nightmare is the right way of putting it. Uh, By the way, may I provide you with a biblical answer to this? Not, Not that I claim to be, you know... Uh, a PhD in theology, um, far from it. Um, but may I propose that maybe the Apostle Paul, uh, who probably had more than the equivalent of a PhD in theology, and by virtue of the fact that he was taught the gospel from Christ directly and was a eyewitness of his resurrection, he might, I think he might trump some of these other folks. Um, Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse uh, starting at verse 16, says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ 
reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. May I propose that the biblical answer to the question, um, uh, what did God do in Christ that we could not do for ourselves is uh, reconcile us to God through his shed blood on the cross so that God wouldn't count our sins against us, but instead would be merciful and forgiving to us. You know, and by the way, uh, since that guy talks about Christ dying for our sins, yeah, let's take a look at what Isaiah, you know, the, the prophet Isaiah is somebody who heard from God directly. Okay, Isaiah chapter chapter 53. Let's see what Isaiah says about this. Um, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces... He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is talking about the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Surely he has borne our our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. Yeah, you see, um, there's a substitutionary element right there in the book of Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, has laid, put upon Christ uh, the iniquity of us all. Which, by the way, points us all the way back to Leviticus. You know, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the sins of the people being laid on the sacrifice. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, again, I'm no PhD in theology, but I mean, call me silly, call me narrow minded, call me backwards, call me traditional, call me conservative, whatever you want to call me. But if you're going to theologize, if you're going to ask somebody a question that's a theological question, shouldn't the theologian go to the revealed word of God and say, here's what God's word says about this question? (sighs) I think I can stomach one more. Let's go on. Yes, well, God... This is Harvey Cox from Harvard so-called Divinity School. ...displayed and uh, enacted the the fullness of God's purpose for the universe and for God and for human beings. Can you diagram that sentence for me, Harvey? I think God does have a purpose in creating the universe and in placing human beings in the universe. Uh Uh, We're imperfect creatures. Does that mean we're sinful? And that Christ died for our sins? Or is it just like, you know, we're flawed, you know, like, you know, there needs to be a recall, you know, because we have an accelerator pedal that gets stuck. Uh, uh, But God entered into the life of one man, Uh namely Jesus of Nazareth, in a completely full 
and, uh, uh, and un, un, unstinting way. Really? So, yeah, so God entered into the life of one man. That's a weird way of putting it. That's not biblical language. So that we would have some idea of what the full possibilities of human life are. Oh, so God entered into the life of one guy so that we could know what the full possibilities of human life are. Which of the apostles taught this? Where is this doctrine taught in the scripture? Where is this theology laid out in the New Testament? On the one hand, and what God intends for us, what God intends for all of all human, all human beings. Uh, one could say, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And if you want to know what Jesus was, was, was doing, then you know it from, from the fact that he was filled with God. Now, what is God doing we know from Jesus that he is, uh, he is moving with us the whole creation toward what they call the, the, the reign of God or the shalom, the era of shalom, which uh, will... Who's they? I... ...will come at some, some point in the future, but whose, uh, whose uh, foreshadowings are here now, uh-huh. and we can live in them and enjoy them and appreciate them yeah. right now. Uh-huh. So Jesus was the full... Uh, uh, the full incorporation of God's... Yeah, uh, something's full for sure, but uh, yeah. ...purpose of God's project uh, for reality. There we see it. And we we can uh, follow him. We can uh, try to live as he lived. We can ask ourselves, what would he have done in our situation? What do we do now that would uh, be what he did when he lived? And we that would be the what would Jesus do? Okay, do that because nobody else has that fullness, oh. complete fullness of God's presence within him. No one has that complete fullness of God's presence. Harvey, that's kind of a weird way of putting it. It sounds to me like you're denying that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, uh, God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity. This is what happens, folks, when you... Abandon God's word when you have a theologian, a pastor, or whoever who is attacking, deconstructing, uh, whatever, God's word. This is where you end up in complete gobbledygook. Cheech and Chong could be giving this theology because it doesn't make any sense. This is just utter foolishness. Maybe I'll play a few more of these on a future edition of Fighting for the Faith absolutely pathetic if you're a theologian your theology comes from the revealed word of god and no other place if you attack god's word the theology that you're promoting is not from god's word it's burbling up from your belly or it's something that you got while smoking marijuana or whatever up in smoke is a good way of putting it your theology goes up in smoke this is just crazy All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to be doing our sermon review entitled Talented But Not Dangerous from the uh, Summit Summit Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and their sermon series, Summit's Got Talent, by Pastor Pat Schatzlein. And we're going to be uh, talking about the inspiration of God as uh, uh, the inspiration of Scripture as part of our sermon review today, so you don't want to miss that. Now, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions... Of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, 
Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pyre Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Well into hour number two. Folks... Anybody who claims to be a theologian who isn't driving you into a deeper 
and correct understanding of God's Word isn't a theologian. That would be like saying that a mechanic is a guy who teaches you how to better go surfing and work on your suntan. No, a mechanic is somebody who works on cars. All right, moving along. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, if you can call it that, comes to us via Summit Church, Birmingham, Alabama. Pat Schatzline is the pastor. Sermon series is entitled Summit's Got Talent, and the uh, name of the sermon itself is Talented But Dangerous. We could just rename this sermon as Dangerous. <laughs> now, in order to discuss this sermon, we need to understand something about biblical inspiration. When we say we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, what do we mean? Well, may I point something out here? We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the very words that were written to be written in the languages that they were written. The thing is, is that those words, they convey ideas, ideas that have their origin in the very mind of God. So if you were to really push deep into understanding what the inspired word is all about, what we're really talking about is not just inspired words, but inspired thoughts, very thoughts that have their origin in the mind of God that have been put down in written format for us. So when we talk about inspiration and we talk about correctly handling God's word, the goal of a good biblical interpreter is to correctly convey the thoughts that are recorded in scripture so that we can correctly understand who God is and what he's done for us. It's possible for somebody to open up the Bible and not tell us correctly the thoughts that are recorded there, but send us off in a completely different direction. So with that in mind, keep in mind, properly handling God's Word requires us to correctly convey the thoughts that are in the Scriptures. False doctrine, false teaching, always, always, always teaches you thoughts that are not correct. Thoughts that do not have their origin in God's word, but have their origin in the mind or fantasy of the one uh, teaching the text. Keep that in mind. So today's sermon is talented but dangerous. We should just call this sermon dangerous. I want to move into this word, and the, I'm taking it to another level today. Now, trust me, it's going to be a little different today. Uh, we'll shout, and we'll do an illustrated sermon next Sunday morning for Campus Days. But today, can I teach a little bit? Is that all right? 
Can I disciple just a bit? Can I talk to you about the giftings and the talents? In fact, the title of the message is Talented But Dangerous, Gifted But Broken. You know what? There's something awesome about somebody realizing that God can use them. One of the things I love, and, and it may, maybe it's the... Huh? Something wonderful about finding out the, somebody finding out that God can use them? Use them for what? The, the heartbeat of traveling and ministering to students for years. I love the forerunner school. I love seeing students get on fire or realizing that they have talents or giftings. Here's my goal this morning. I want to take this series to the next level. Because I've met a lot of talented people that are dangerous. I've met a lot of gifted people that need to understand brokenness. And believe it or not, talents and giftings are two different things. And I want to take and teach you for a moment on the three types of gifts that God gave the church. We'll go into that in just a moment. I want to tell you that God's been waiting on you. I want to tell you you're not an oops, you're not an accident. God has been wanting to use you, but maybe you don't think he can. Okay, right off the bat, got a question. Where in the scriptures has this thought be con- been conveyed? God wants to use you, but you never thought God you, that, that, that you can be used by God. Notice he's not beginning in the text. He's beginning in his own mind, his own ideas. So he's not correctly telling us the inspired thoughts found in God's word. In fact, some of the things he's saying contradict the inspired thoughts of God's word. Let's continue. So you may not like this message very much this morning because it might actually make you a little miserable. Because you may realize that we are squandering days and time and God is saying, I'm waiting on you. Where in the Bible, in the inspired text, in the inspired thoughts, do we get this thought, this teaching, that God is waiting on us to use us? I know you're waiting on me to raise somebody up, waiting on another Billy Graham to be born, but I I shouted when you were born. Where does it say in the Bible that God shouted when we were born? Now, keep in mind, there is a birth in which, you know, that was heralded by the very angels of God. And it wasn't my birth and it wasn't your birth. It was the birth of Jesus Christ. So when Pastor Schatzlein is saying here, that God shouted and people, you know, and heaven rejoiced when you were born? Is there a single text in the scripture where that thought was inspired to be put down? Or does that thought that he gave, that God rejoiced when you were born, contradict scripture? Now, by the way, There is a time when it talks about the angels rejoicing regarding human beings. There is a text that talks about that. But it's not at your birth. It's at your rebirth. When you're born again, when a sinner repents, the angels of heaven rejoice. Right? That's what the scriptures teach. So this guy is teaching something. He's teaching thoughts that are not found in scripture. Thoughts that are not inspired. Thoughts that contradict the inspired 
thoughts recorded for us in Scripture. We continue. I said it is good when you were born. The angels cheered when you were born. But there's a big difference in talent and giftings. You need both. In fact, I'm going to teach you about how the talent leads to the giftings. The concept is some people maybe don't know their talents yet. Singing may not be it. Maybe mama lied to them. Okay, that happened to my brother. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I was looking for my niece. Hannah, don't tell him I said that. Then there's others that their talents they are going to have to give an account for. The Bible says every knee shall bow. Romans chapter 14, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I honestly believe that the most embarrassing church service in history will be on that great, great white judgment throne day. But I also think they'll be a little embarrassing also over at the Bema seat of Christ. The seat where the Christians are asked what they should have done. Over at the great white judgment throne, people that would never use their giftings, whether it was Sinatra, whether it was Kurt Cobain, whoever it might have been, maybe it was Elvis. If you ask my mom, Elvis is in heaven. She's prayed about it. But people that never used their giftings for Jesus will give an account. And what you have to understand is there's a difference in talents and giftings. My favorite part of that video is that little girl, six years old, just got up and sang. She's just now discovering who she's going to be. I've been teaching out of Matthew chapter 25, and again, you'll also find it in Luke. It's two different times that Jesus taught on the talents and how serious it really was. And we know the whole story. You know that a talent is the balance. It's the weight. The word talent means weight or balance. It's the thing that brings about who you are. It's the balance thereof. It also means a coin. Matthew 25, we know the story. I've been teaching on it for three weeks now. I have, Pastor Sean has, and pray for Pastor Sean and Enid. They are actually in New Mexico doing a wedding today. And uh, Pastor, part of being a youth pastor for many years means that you now do all the weddings. And so Pastor Sean and Enid are there. So, so pray their protection as, as they come home tomorrow. But I've been teaching you about the five and the, the two and the one talented people. You know, there's a lot of people that keep showing up with, their, with dirt on their one talent. We know the story. He walks up. Remember what I told you? The master was not responding to a brand new servant. He was responding to a preconceived understanding of who that person was already. He knew what obedience was in their life. He was giving them one more chance. To the five, he gave five talents who brought back five more. To the two, he gave two talents who brought two back. And then we know the story of the one. And the one comes back with a little dirt on it. I knew you to be a hard taskmaster, what it says. We know where it says in God's word right up there. He says, hey, to two of them, come and share in your master's happiness. Come and be a part of it. But then we know the man who had received the one talent, verse 24, Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. What do you mean? Maybe he was responding to their already preconceived uh, productivity. Maybe he knew the, the one with five was going to bring back five more. The two, yeah, he's starting to get it. He's going to bring back. But the one, I bet the master wasn't ticked off because he didn't have an increase. He was ticked off because he was hoping the guy would finally get it. It's just a theory. Why are you preaching it if it's just a theory then? Let's read the text, by the way. Matthew chapter 25 Verse 
14. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which I lovingly refer to as the English Sanctified Version. I read, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them uh, his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Notice there was no command. He just gave him his property. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Notice the talents were just kind of a gift. Here you go. No demands made. And what happens is that the one guy goes and he does business with the gift that was given to him by his master. Um, He traded with them, made five talents more. So also the one had two talents, made two more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay. What's going on here? It all depends upon the view of the master. That's the thing. The one guy was excited, right? Master, you delivered to me five talents. I've come and I've made five talents more. Hooray! Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Obviously, that that guy thought his master wasn't a cruel man, and uh, and he, he didn't. The master didn't leave any instructions on what to do, but he went and used his master's money, did business in his master's name. And he was excited when his master came back because, look, master, your talent made five more, right? So who he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The guy took a risk, Right? With his master's talents, his money. He would receive the one talent came forward saying, Master, I I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you don't sow, gathering where you don't scatter seed. What do we know about this guy? He doesn't know nothing about the master. Who is the master? Jesus. Really, Jesus is a hard man? Jesus is a hard man, really. You don't know nothing about Jesus. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money in the bankers, or with the bankers. And, And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he who has uh, will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the one who has will be given more. The one who doesn't have, even what he has, will be taken from him. And has what? Has what? Hebrews 11 answers the question. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Two of these servants had faith. They were trusting their master. And their actions bore fruit in keeping with their faith. Each of them had a double, doubling of what they were given. So each of you know, the guy who had five, he got ten. The one who had ten, uh, two, he had it doubled and he got four, right? Each, I mean, they're both, this, it's the same percentage of increase. Each slightly different amounts based upon their quotability. But the, the important thing is faith. Faith and trust in Christ. Now, this comes out even more clearly when you look at the cross-reference to this passage, which is found in uh, Luke chapter 19. Let me read this. This account of it kind of helps. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation uh, after him saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So this slightly different retelling of the story, again, involves money as the metaphor, but what's going on here? Do business in my name while I'm gone. Some of these guys do business in their name, risking their own lives. Why? Because they, they have faith and trust that he's going to return. And they're going to do business in his name. Do business in the name of Christ. What does it mean to do business in the name of Christ? Share the gospel. What is it that he has left us with to do business with? His gospel. That's that's the currency of the kingdom. God's word, the gospel. Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Teaching him all that I have commanded you. Right? Baptizing. To do business in Christ's name is to do business with the very things that that are his, his word, the gospel, the word, the sacraments. That's what, the, that's what it means to do business, okay? All right, let's see here. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called that he might know what they uh, gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more. And he said to them, well done. Good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have the authority over ten cities. And the second came and said, Lord, your mine has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Another came to him and said, Lord, here's your mina, I, which I kept uh, hidden in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit. You reap what you could not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten. 
I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. But as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to be uh, to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So what's the inspired thought here? This is the inspired word of God. These words were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is this a story that the Holy Spirit told so that you would, quote, put your talents to work, whether you can sing, dance, um, play the guitar, uh, maybe you're a, mu- a musician or whatever you're, quote, talented at so that you could put your talents to work for the kingdom? No, that's not what this is about. Showing God that you're obedient with the get with the talents He's given you, no, that's not what this is about. Because the word talent in the story in Lucas Mina, it shows that what's being put into play here is currency. You know, it's a metaphor to point us to the bigger thing, if you would. The bigger thing being faith, the gospel, trusting in Christ. Not whether or not you, you know, you were like Elvis and used your singing talent to God's glory. So this guy isn't telling you the truth. He's not helping you see what the inspired thoughts are in this inspired text. He's telling you something different. We continue. goes away, and I bet the servants at that moment decide, what should we do now? Now, you're going to help me preach today. I know that there's a lot of people gone, but I need you to talk to me today. Is that all right? Everybody say amen. Because I'm here to encourage you that God put talents in you. He put giftings in you. If you ever put the two together, you might just shake a nation. You might just shake your workplace. You might just shake your neighborhood. If you begin to understand the kiss from heaven when you were born, he put things in you. And if you ever grab hold of the spirit, wow. A pastor, write this down. Can you be talented and not gifted? The question that's come up throughout this series, and some has got talent series, the question that keeps coming up is, Pastor, what is the difference between talents and giftings? What do you mean? There's similarities and there's differences between talents and spiritual gifts. Both are gifts from God. I believe that with all my heart. Both grow in effectiveness with use. Both are intended to be used on behalf of, of others and not for selfish purposes. Everything God's given you, it's not about you. But I've met a lot of talented people that work for the devil. And I can even remember growing up in church, it wasn't about the giftings, it was about the talent. They would let people on the platform on Sunday morning that had been partying the night before, playing in a bar, but just as long as you were talented, we need you. There's actual churches that pay people doesn't matter their life. doesn't matter whether or not they're pure. And, and But see, what I've learned is a balance. I've learned that, that, man, we'll take a chance on anybody. But I've also learned I don't want anything touching the anointing that's up here. I want it to stay pure. Even if you can't sing, you may have the worst voice in the whole wide world. I'll hand you a mic and turn you off just because you, you know how to worship. And see, what you got to understand is I don't care about your giftings or your talent as much as your heart. We'd used to use people on stages because they could move crowds, but there was nothing, there was no move of God, there was no... Okay, what we're hearing here is pure law. What's in your heart? What does Jesus say? Out of the heart comes 
adultery and sins and all kinds of wretched vileness. It's because of your heart that you need a savior. Your heart is deceitfully wicked. So notice the emphasis. Okay, he's twisted here. He's basically taken the word talent that's in this text and translated it into what we in the, in the English language think talent is talent on loan from God or America's got talent, but that's not what was going on here. A talent in this story was basically a, a sum of money. It had monetary value. He's not telling you what the inspired thoughts are. In fact, by mishandling this text, you're not hearing what God the Holy Spirit inspired in this in there as far as the thoughts for you to think. We continue. Spirit. And really, it boils down to who are you pay, who are you playing for? What is the crowd you're looking for that to cheer you on? You look at Galatians one verse ten, the NIV version. I love it. And now, and, and I now am, am I now trying to win the approval of men or God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Bible says I can't please men. Look what it says in Romans. I've taught you this. God's giftings and calling are under full warranty. They're never canceled. The most dangerous, meanest, bitter people I've ever met are the ones that are anointed but refuse to walk in it. And they force everyone else to live up to their lost expectations of life. Look what it says in Hebrews about the cloud of witnesses. I love this. I love what it says in the, in the Message Bible. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blaze the way. All these veterans are cheering us on. Bible says there's all these people cheering us on. It means we better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat. Love that. No parasitic sense. The things that cripple you, by the way. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both. Okay. Notice he's mentioning sins here. The problem is every listener, if you're, if they're honest with themselves, would realize. Well, wait a second. I, I'm sinning. I've sinned. What about me? Solution isn't being presented as Christ and him crucified for our sins, but you better get busy, get obedient, and start using your talents toward to glorify God, because that's what this text is all about. No, it's not. It's about faith and trust in Christ. Began and finished his race we were in. See, what you've got to realize is, but pastor, is it true that you can have natural-born talents? Yes. Write that down. Natural-born talents. What's a talent? Oh, a talent could be anything. You can have a sense of responsibility that creates a talent in your life. You can be an athlete and be talented. You can be a musician and be talented. You can have ownership of a job, and your talent is for that. You have learned. Talent is an acquired skill. Sometimes genetics play a part. Mom and dad were musicians, and it just comes natural for you. But most of the time, a talent is something that you're born with or something that you acquire over a period of time of doing it over and over and over again and getting good at it. Right? Not many people are like that six-year-old little girl that can suddenly sing like that. So it's a talent is something that grows on you. It's a combination of genetics. Some people are good with numbers. Some people can do math. And it just naturally comes to them. It's an awesome thing. It's almost the kiss from heaven. It's kind of like this. You have a body... And C.S. Lewis said it best. I love what he said. He said, we're not a body that happens to have a spirit. We're a spirit that happens to have a body. 
But it's kind of like the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's like the three in one. It's like the egg, which is how you describe the Trinity. You've got a body and you've got a soul and a spirit. So you've got a body and you've got a talent and a gifting. Two different things. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you that many times you are born with talent or you acquire talent over a period of time. You get good at baseball. You're a talented baseball player because you get out there in the heat all summer long and you just keep throwing that ball. You just keep throwing it. You get good at pitching. See, what I'm talking about is I'm going somewhere, but I want to teach you that you can have talent and not have giftings and you can be gifted and not have talents. But if you ever put the two together... This is just complete gobbledygook. From supposedly a Christian pulpit of no... uh, Just ridiculous. This text isn't about your talents or giftings. You're a world changer. What do you mean? All through God's word it showed people that had talents. Look what Moses did. Moses, Exodus 31, verse 1 through 6, Moses is setting up the temple. God says, hey, there's people within the entire tribe of Israel. There's a whole group of people that can help you build the temple, Moses. Look at this. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have chosen Bezalel, uh, Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill ability and knowledge and all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. And it's cool. God says, I put that in him to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I've appointed Oholiab, son of Hasamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I've given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I've commanded you. God says, I gave you the talents you have. It's your choice to act upon them. What do you mean? Remember David's mighty men? I love it when he describes David's mighty men. 2 Samuel 23, verse 20 says, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kebzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. In other words, the Bible talks about some of the mighty men have the ability to just fight. They're just great at killing things. Now, I promise you it too. This guy did not, wasn't able to walk into a pit on a snowy day and kill a lion. But over a period of time, are you getting this so far? Maybe it's because he had faith in a great God. You see, he's using the Bible, pulling texts out, but not correctly having you see what the inspired thoughts are. He's superimposing Thoughts that are not in the text. Unbelievable. Tim, I'll take you on a journey. It's a little little different today. I want to teach you that you can be gifted. Or you can be talented. I want to teach you that you can be talented. Or you can be gifted. But it's better when you have both. Maybe you don't understand. Remember Samson? Judges chapter 16. What happened? Bible says... God spoke to Samson's father, Menorah. He said, hey, listen, I want you to raise this boy as a Nazarite. Three things. No strong drink. Don't cut his hair. Can't touch anything dead. What did Samson do? The Bible says that he was stronger than all the other men. He was a he-man with a she-man problem. But what you've got to realize is Samson probably didn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think he looked normal. But he had a touch. He was a judge. But he played with the anointing. 
three different things. He drank. He touched dead things. He pulled honey out of a dead lion. He killed a bunch of people with the jawbone of a donkey. He wasn't supposed to touch that. And then, well, then we know what happens. The razor touches his hair, and he lost his power. But see, here's the problem. Most of us in this room, we have put a lid on God at that moment when we first got touched, and we think, well, that's as far as I can go. And God says, I want your talents to grow, but I also want you to step to the next level, my giftings. Two different things. This is not biblical teaching. These are the ravings of a madman. Two totally different things. What do you mean? There's three categories of giftings in the Bible. Again, it's teaching time. Okay. Number one, spiritual gifts are given to help all believers. What do you mean? Romans chapter 12 talks about it. It's called the gifts of grace. When you got saved... You can receive the gift of knowledge, the gift of prophecy. You can, uh, uh, the gift of communication, the gift of serving others, teaching, exhorting, generosity, leadership, showing mercy. God says there's one level of gifts that come at the moment you bow your knee. I will give you that type of gifting. Man, you ever meet somebody with the Romans 12 gifting? They, they exhort. They always encourage others. That doesn't come from the devil. That doesn't come naturally when the spirit of God gets on somebody and they appreciate who they are. And if they like who they are, they'll also like who everybody else is. Find somebody that's insecure and they'll never compliment anybody else. How can I compliment them? I hate me. The gift of generosity, because you understand where much is given, much is required. You understand if I give it away, I'll get blessed. That comes an understanding, a gifting hits your life the moment you get saved, the Bible says. It's kind of cool. It's like God goes, there you go. You're like, dude, I just want to bless somebody. How many people have I seen get saved? It's the drug dealer that walked up to me in New Mexico, pulled off a $10,000 Rolex and handed it to me. Presidential Rolex. Beautiful. Hands it to me. Just put this in your pocket. Middle altar call. Hundreds of people at the altars. I'm like, that's awesome. Feels like a watch. A heavy watch. I love watches. I get back to the room and I go, he says, I have robbed from a generation for years. He's in his 30s. I've killed him. I've murdered him. He said, this was bought with drug money. I have to get rid of this. You know what God did to me? Two weeks later, I flew to Singapore. I'm standing in a service. You know what God did to me? Unbelievable. He said, give it away. Standing up Singapore preaching, and I didn't know that a watch was a sign of covenant in Singapore. I looked at my dear friend, Pastor Young, who's sitting on the front row, and I said, I was mad about it too. But what's been given, you got to give away. Oh, you don't, you're not getting this. Okay, I'm going to move on without y'all today. I'm going to preach to the, to the star. Number two, spiritual giftings. There's also the gifts that benefit others. What do you mean? First Corinthians chapter 12 talks about it. Verse 7. Now, each, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Stop, urge, stop the car, Pentecostals. You're being baptized in the Holy Ghost or have the ability to prophesy or you're having the ability to minister to somebody has nothing to do with you. It is not about you. It is about bringing life to others. The gift of healing is not so you can go, oh, look what I touched. Oh, look what I did. God says we missed that first line. Every anointing that God gives someone, the second type of gift is the gifts for others. That's why you don't get it. Can he trust you with it? Well, I want to be able to lay hands on people and watch them get healed. <gasps> Nothing. 
because you went around it wrong. I want to lay hands on somebody so they can get healed, even if no one ever sees my name or knows who I am. But they walk out of this place not limping, but dancing. They walk out of this place not in pain, but free of pain. If God says, if I can trust you with it, I'll give it to you. Somebody give him a praise. Where in the Bible does it say, if God can trust you with a gift, he'll give you the gift? Notice all the law talk here. You having to make yourself worthy, show yourself to be trustworthy to receive the gift. It's a complete mangling of this text. What's the third type of gifting that God gives to the church? Third level. Ephesians talks about it, chapter 4. It says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. How many of you know there's still pastors out there? There's still prophets out there. Now, we don't like to talk about it because we'd rather have a three-finger God. What do you mean? It's the five fingers, the fivefold. Apostle? Prophet. The apostle can touch everything because he's walked at some point in the other four. The the prophet, he's the pointer. I'm going to explain deeper in just a moment. The evangelist? The the office of apostle is not something that is filled today. There are no apostles. The apostles were those who were witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Eyewitnesses of it. There are no apostles alive today. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. Oh, boy. Then we've got, what what does the Bible say? The pastor, he's the ring finger. He's married to the bride. Then you've got the teacher who brings balance to everything. Without this, you're not going to have balance. See, it's the fivefold. People don't teach on that anymore. Three types of giftings in the church. What are they? Gifts of grace, then the gifts that benefit others, the gifts of healing, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, wisdom, knowledge. Then there's the gifts given to the church. See, we don't preach about that. We don't like to talk about that. Who's the apostle? The apostle sets things in order. He's an overseer, brings discernment, correction. He has a father anointing. He or she does. A true apostle will many times carry around all four at different times. He becomes a master of all trades. He has the ability to meet others' expectations. Larry Stockstill, pastors. I call him the apostle. He pastors in Baton Rouge. He is there for me. I can call him about anything. Pastors 25,000 people, but he will speak into my life and say, Pat, do this, do this, do this. He helps Sean and I walk through things. Karen and I walk through things. He is an apostle. My dad is an apostle. We've cut that off in the church, and we've relegated to some district office. Oh, I'm about to get on this. Somebody. There are no apostles today. That office ended when the, the Apostle John died. End of the first century. Unbelievable. They just ask you about your tithe. That's not the role of an apostle. An apostle walks in and says, how's your wife? How's your children? How's your marriage? How's your thought life? How's your family? How's your ministry? How's your failure spirit? How you doing with all that stuff? Believe this stuff, church. The prophet, well, we don't want prophets because they're weird. Let me tell you something. A prophet just doesn't bring death. He brings life. He encourages you in your future. He says, hey, do this. And usually most people possess two of the giftings. 
Apostles and prophets walk together. Pastors and teachers walk together. Evangelists will walk with the prophetic. See, you're not getting what I'm saying. I'm trying to explain this to you. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. It says this. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is, is a part of it. And in the church, God... Where does it say that people walk in two giftings in the Bible? Again, he mentions passages from the Bible. But supposedly we started in uh, Matthew 25, and now we're into the fivefold ministry, whatever that is. Good night. God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and the workers of miracles. Also, those having gifts of healing, those who are able to help others, those with the gifts of administration, those in speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? No. Do you all work miracles? Nada. For you that understand Spanish, that means no. Do you all have the gifts of healing? Do you all speak in tongues? Do you all interpret? But eagerly desire that you get these. So not everybody's going to have this. What do you mean? Psalms 32 verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Well, pastor, is one gifting greater than the other? Listen, it's not so much that one gifting is greater than the other or one office is greater than the other. They all complement each other. Yes, there's an order. There's always a direct line. But God says, let me bring the about. Well, well, pastor, can everybody possess all the spiritual gifts? And by the way, the Bible is unlimited on spiritual giftings. It doesn't mention everything. I believe this with all my heart. I believe there's more and more. Now, some people have the wrong giftings. (laughs) The gift of wine and those aren't from heaven. The gift of complaining. Not anybody at the summit. Let's talk about other churches. The gift of rudeness. The gift of arrogance. You know what that is? That's called a demon. All those things, we call them giftings. It's amazing. We'll watch a basketball player and go, he's gifted. No, he's not. He's talented. Big difference. He's not gifted. Because gifting comes from heaven above. Talent comes from the very DNA that God created, the helic DNA. You're not getting this yet. I'm just going to preach. So let me summarize this. What do you mean? To summarize the difference between spiritual gifts and talents, a talent is the result of genetics and training, while a spiritual gift is the result of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. It's me at eight years old, in an altar call, at youth camp, camp ambassador, down by Clanton, on my knees, one o'clock in the morning, my father holding me, and the Holy Spirit... Kissing me with a new language called speaking in other tongues. Oh, you're going to go on that. No, move on. But see, I've learned that the greater the giftings, the greater the responsibility. Some of y'all think that's from Spider-Man. No, Spidey's uncle didn't come up with that. Look what it says in Luke chapter 12, verse 47. Bring that up for me. Luke 12, verse 47. It says this. To the servant who knows the master and knows what his master wants and ignores it. Uh, I told him to pull that out. I'll, I'll read it to you. Or instantly does whatever he pleases. He will be thoroughly thrashed. But if he does a poor job through ignorance, he'll get off with a slap on the hand. Great gifts mean great responsibility. Greater gifts, greater responsibility. That didn't come up with the uncle dying as Spider-Man was laying there. Remember that from the movie? Now you can, gotcha. No. That's Bible. God says, I will anoint you for more if I can trust you with more. 
the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say God will anoint you with more if he can trust you with more. Uh, even the text that supposedly started this sermon off, well, this is a train wreck of a sermon. You know, it talks about Christ's return. Uh, I'll let you do this. There's nothing that stinks worse than a stagnant pool of oil. Go to a gas station where they drain it all out. Man, it gets nasty. I fell in one as a kid. I got stained for a week and beat for it. Listen, what you have to understand is maybe, well, pastor, can I compare my gifts to others? The Bible says if you compare yourself to other people, you're a fool. But the Bible also says in Ephesians 4, verse 7, in the Message Bible, not to be a copycat. Don't be a cheap imitation of a great original. Be you. Just be you. Don't try to be that other person. What do you mean? Are you getting this so far? See, aren't you? Don't you wish you'd gone on vacation today? Watch Ephesians 4, 7. But that doesn't mean that you should all look and speak and act the same. One of the generosity of Christ, out of the generosity of Christ, each has been given his own gift. Jamie Montero, we raised Jamie up. Jamie's blowing it up across America. He does youth camps, does everything. When I first met Jamie, he came and hung out with me at a hotel in Vegas because he had a call on his life. He said, raise me up. I said, okay, travel with me for a year. Moved his family, traveled with us for a year, went broke for a year, used his retirement to do it. Now he's all over America. But I'll never forget one of the first places that I opened a door, helped open a door, because I want to be a butler, man. I just want to be a butler. I just want to open the door for people. I want to be a stagehand. Preaching about that next week. Just want to open the curtain, God's glory. And I'll never forget my friend in Pennsylvania. I called him and I said, hey, how did Jamie do? I just spoke to about seven or eight hundred teenagers that weekend. He said he was great. He said, he might, I mean, you were great. I went, huh? He said, it was great having you here this weekend. I said, what do you mean? I said, dude, I'm not there. You know, Pennsylvania people. He goes, well, he preached like you. He sounded like you. He acted like you. And he talked like you. And before I understood Father, Sonship, and Spirit, and I said, oh, man, I'm sorry. He said, well, if I'd have wanted you, I'd have invited you. I invited him. I called Jamie, and I said, Jamie, be yourself. And he goes, well, you become whoever is teaching you. And I said, I guess you're right. So don't worry about that then. See, I'm trying to go somewhere. But I, I told Jamie, just be yourself. Now, he's going to take on some attributes from me. You'll take on attributes from that whoever's taught you, that manager that trained you to be a great manager. You're going to take on their attributes. That, that person of your business, you're going to take on their attributes, good and bad. Okay. Let's take a quick sounding here. Is he opening up the word and pointing us to Christ and what Christ has done for us? Or is he uh, cherry-picking a verse here and cherry-picking a verse there and then stringing it together with some narrative about himself to point you to yourself? You see, that's the thing. When a pastor stands up on stage and points to himself, he's teaching you how to point to yourself. But when a pastor points you to Christ... He's not pointing you to himself, and he's not pointing you to yourself. He's not feeding your sinful nature and your ego when he points you to Christ. Because pointing you to Christ also requires you to come to grips with your sinfulness and the fact that you can't fix it. You can't make it better. You can't earn his trust. He has done it all for you. 
And ultimately, that's what the parable of the talents is all about. It's about faith and trust in Christ. And the actions that flow from that faith and love and trust in Christ and the actions of unbelief. That's the contrast, faith versus unbelief. But because he doesn't see this text as about Christ, he's pointing you to himself, and the pastor who points you to him ultimately ends up pointing you to yourself, modeling for you selfish, self-centered, self-focused, self-love, self-theology. Of course, he's got Bible verses peppered in here, of course. He's supposedly revealing to you great biblical mysteries that uh, nobody else has ever seen before, really, until, you know, until the whole Pentecostal movement got rolling. This isn't biblical preaching, and he's not teaching you the inspired thoughts of God. See, you don't understand. Your talent is a bridge over troubled water. What do you mean? You have to realize God has given you talents that are supposed to be used as a bridge, as a gift to your, as, as a bridge to your assignment. The talent is your key to the door of ministry. You're not getting it yet. I gotta explain it better. Okay, look. What do you mean? Your talent pays the bills. Your gifting helps you from having too many bills. Okay, you didn't get it yet. Okay, watch. God has an assignment for you. He has a place and a plan. He never removes that plan. Remember Paul? He wrote most of the New Testament. Paul was a maker of tents. Some believe that's a tallit, which is a prayer shawl. And Bible says that his side job was making tents. How many of you know he would in, he would build the tent or the tabernacle for God? He would build those churches in Ephesus and Corinth and 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 Philippi. But see, what Bible shows us in Acts chapter 16, someone else that not only had talents, but she had giftings. It's pretty brilliant right here if you ever look at this. Because Paul's sitting with a lady, a maker of purple, a woman with an entrepreneur anointing, but she also has a gift of hospitality. I'll prove it to you. So she has talent and she has... She has an entrepreneurial anointing. Lydia in Philippi has a an entrepreneurial anointing. Right. Where does it say that in the text, Pat? Giftings, the two together. And watch what happens. And... She bought into the gift that God had given the church, the apostle. She did all three. Watch. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. The Bible says so much in that one little section of two verses right there. The Bible literally says she is an entrepreneur. She's talented. She has an ability to make finance. Okay, now what is he doing? This is Jesus. He's not correctly teaching you the inspired thoughts in the inspired text. He's inserting thoughts into the scripture that have no place to be there. Doesn't say Lydia had an entrepreneurial anointing. That's not in the inspired text. That's not the inspired thought. The Bible says she's very good with her hands. She's an artist. The Bible says she has a gifting for hospitality, and she had bought in to the gift that had been given the church, the apostle. This woman had it going on. That's why Paul hung out with her. What do you mean? 
David had a sling. Killed giants, bears, and tigers, and lions. And, oh, my. Sorry, I went and saw Wizard of Oz on Friday night. My niece and nephew are in it. And that's, that's a great example. My brother's side of the, my brother's family are very talented. Music and arts and that type of thing. But they're anointed. They pray in the spirit as they're getting ready, as they're walking around dressing rooms with people with major issues on Broadway. I watched my little niece and nephew playing munchkins and being soldiers, and they were just incredible. I was like, wow. See, I honor their giftings because I know that the talent led to the gifting, and their giftings are now ministering to their talents because they walk around and they pray for people on the cast. You're not getting this yet. I am so going to preach just to Glenn. Now watch. God is saying, do you realize how many bits? David had a sling. But he was also a worshiper. His sling got him in the door of the palace, being the, the, that was his talent. His gifting kept him in the palace as he would play worship and run the devil off. Are you getting this so far? How many businessmen have I met that have an entrepreneur anointing and they say, when I retire, I'm going to go overseas and build churches? Because their talent is now pulling out a gifting. It's saying generosity. It's saying, go to the next level. What do you mean? How many... And Pat here is just saying, gobbledygook. This is gobbledygook every bit as much as that emergent stuff that we played on, you know, before hour number two. Seriously, does any of this make any sense to you at all? With an open Bible, he isn't teaching you the inspired thoughts of God. That's really where the rubber meets the road regarding a good handler of God's word, somebody who cuts it straight, as the Apostle Paul describes it in the Greek. Somebody who cuts the word straight is somebody who will show you and open up God's word and show you the thoughts that are there. God's thoughts. His inspired word teaches you inspired thoughts. Doctrine, teaching that points you to Christ and what he's done for you. Somebody who is mishandling God's word will not take you down the path where you are hearing and understanding the very thoughts of God recorded in his inspired word. Instead, they are going to distract you away using sleight of hand, eisegesis, and ripping things out of context and ultimately who he is pointing you to will tell you whether or not he's teaching you what the scripture says. This man's pointing you to yourself. He's not pointing you to Christ and what Christ has done for you. Many people are playing for the wrong people. You're not called to dance with the stars. You're not called to sing with the wrong people. In fact, the Bible even warns us in Matthew chapter 7, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. See, you don't understand. God is saying, I'm wanting to raise you up. I've got dreams for you, but I want to show you that yes, you're talented in whatever it may be, but you're also gifted. I want to bring those two together like a bridge over troubled water. That talent, that thing you love doing, I want you to let that grow inside of you and let the giftings rise up. And together you'll become a complete believer. Are you with me so far? Not at all. That I don't know what this is that you just were preaching, but that's not what the Bible teaches. 
These are not God's thoughts. Here's the tough part. Talented people who do not let their giftings operate in their life are dangerous. I've met them. They'll cut you. What do you mean? Psalms 25 verse 9. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way, not the haughty. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible right here. You prideful people, I'm going to raise you up. No, it says you're going to fall. You people that think you got it all together, that you're just the best, and you're like, ooh, look at those weird people down there that can't do anything like me. I'm going to make you the kingdom. No. Sorry, that's the opposite of what God says. What do you mean? Talented people are dangerous. Why? They use their talents for their own gain. They're dangerous because they earn finances, but they go for riches. Proverbs 11.4, rich, um, uh, riches won't help us on the day of judgment, but right living is a safeguard against death. They use talents, but the talents use them. They tend to believe they're the only one that are talented. They tend to believe that others are not as good as them. They tend to believe uh, to live by their emotions according to their victories. If they, if they don't have a victory, they're not going to be, you know. They get satisfied. See, it's the gifting inside of me that won't let my talent go to sleep. It's God saying, what? It's the gifting inside of you that won't let your talent go to sleep. Oh, yeah, I don't want those talents falling asleep. What on earth is this? And Pat, because you guys don't know the ninth grader that whose knees knocked and was so afraid to publicly speak. You don't know that guy, do you? The guy that was laying on his face in college saying, God, please use me. Do you want me to coach and be a teacher or do you want me to, what do you want me to do, God? And I walked into a chapel service where a guy named Mark Montaigne was preaching, an old missionary from Calcutta who's preaching away and they're singing his song, if you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. And I walked to the front and fell on my knees and all my friends that weren't really on fire for God were sitting over there going, what's happening with Shatz? What's, what happened to him? They didn't know I'd been up all night saying, God, can you use me? But God, I don't have any giftings. My own teachers had told me, don't preach. You don't have the right voice for it see what you don't understand is god can take and if you will just say lord talent me uh, use me let me grow in my craft let me become good at what i do then let the giftings of the holy spirit come together and it is perfect it's an oreo cookie man you got the cream right in the middle that's you just moldable that that part that's moldable but god says i'll book into you on each side with talents and giftings and i'll use you just be available while everybody else is sitting in the gallery where is this uh, just be available doc- doctrine taught in Scripture? You're hearing thoughts. He's blaming these thoughts on God. But they're not found in God's Word. These are not inspired thoughts. They become dangerous, talented people, because they run over people. Too many times they live trying to top their last performance. They they have no grace for others that are less talented. They lose the ability to better themselves. Proverbs 3, verse 34 says this. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. I skipped over a verse. I love this verse. Proverbs 11, 2. The stuck up fall flat on their faces, but down to earth people stand firm. <laughs> I love that. Hmm. Biffy, listen. I don't know where stuff comes from. <laughs> that was for Ty. He went to 
private school. Bro, here we go. They don't need God. In fact, God just gets in their way. Talented people that don't have giftings, that don't allow God's spirit to move, that, that, that whole, they don't get it. Cancel your calendar for two years. Start a church. Huh? Are you an idiot? One pastor sat in my living room and said, you're at the pinnacle. What are you thinking? And I went, I'm going to go, well, the devil was at the pinnacle and he, that whole thing of the wilderness, that really happened to me. God said, do it. I'll do whatever he tells me to do. See, I don't know if I'm making sense today. I don't want to wear the wrong jewelry. Look at Psalm 73, verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From the callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of the minds knows no limits. Ephesians 4, 2. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, talented people can be dangerous to hell, too, you know. Notice all the verses he's taking out of context are all law things that you have to do. Where's the gospel? Where's what Christ has done for us? Where's the forgiveness of sins? One verse after another after another, the thing you've got to do, 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 do. This is all law. In illegal uses of God's law. And he's talking about himself incessantly. You know that, right? They're dangerous to hell if they walk in humility. Hell can't stand it when someone realizes they're good at something. If you ever figure out you're good at something, my grandma... Really, where does the Bible say that hell can't stand it when you find out you're good about something? Give me a break. My mother was 60 years old when she realized she was a very good artist. Maybe maybe 50 years old. Oh, no, and the devil couldn't handle that. The last 15, 20 years of her life, she began to make pottery and sell it at flea markets. And she was the happiest she'd ever been because she realized she was good at something. You'd go to her house and, man, you'd get cooked because those kilts would be going. Sand everywhere. She was so happy. Cue sappy music for emotional manipulation. If you're talented but humble... Watch out. The world is your playground. They'll advance God's kingdom. I'm going to close with this. This is just kind of one of those discipleship words. It's that moment of staying teachable, of saying, I don't want to mess up. Listen, church, no one is untouchable. If you ever get talented and gifted, let me just give you one warning. Ding, 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 ding. Radar. You're on his radar. There's a lot of gifted people that never go after talents, and because of that, they're socially inept. A lot of talented people that never go after the giftings of God, therefore, just casting pearls among swine. But if you ever get gifted and talented, I want to warn you of this, if that were to happen to you. First Corinthians 10 says it best in verse 12. So think you're standing firm. Careful. You don't fall. No temptation sees you except what is common to man. But I love this. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also give you a door. When I feel temptation, I just start looking for a door. Temptation when you're gifted and talented. And you've gone on Satan's radar screen. Again, what is this? This is like fortune cookie way of reading the Bible. 
pick a verse here, pick a verse there, pick a verse there, pick a verse here, weave it into your narrative. And when you do that, have you learned God's thoughts? Because the very words that God caused to be inspired in Scripture, he inspired them to convey thoughts that have meaning and teaching. And their origin is in God's mind itself. But are you really in this sermon learning God's thoughts? Learning what his word truly says? Not at all. We are off-roading here. We're not hearing God's thoughts. We're hearing the thoughts of a guy who potentially could be crazy. All right, what's up? There's a door somewhere in here because he said he will not let me get tempted beyond what I can handle. And I believe that I can fall. It's those that believe they can't fall. That's when talents have overridden giftings. Because if the Holy Spirit lives in you, he'll go, stop! Stop! Run! You're not above the law. Romans 2 says it. If you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the, fo- of the, uh, of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law of the embodiment of knowledge of truth, verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? <laughs> Love that. You preach against stealing, do you actually steal? You say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? It is written, God's name is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. Okay, now, going to point this out because I think it's clear in this passage. Hang on, he's quoting from Romans. Hold on, uno momento. Okay, um, you judge. Okay, yeah, we're in, okay, we're in Romans chapter 2. Okay. Interesting. Let me read it to you. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges and passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge and practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God is right and rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge uh, those who practice such things and yet do them, that you yourself will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's quoting Romans chapter 2 in such a way as if what Paul's really saying here is now get busy and start obeying. The whole point of Romans 2 and 3 here is that none of us obeys, that we're all sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. All are declared basically found to be sinners because of God's law. And we are justified by grace through faith, and it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Here he's quoting from Romans, and I'm going to back this up just a little bit so you can hear how he's misapplying this text. He's not pointing us to Christ and him crucified. He's preaching this text as if this is a text that teaches us we better get busy and get cracking and start getting obedient. That's not the point of this passage at all. Let me back this guy up just a smidge. Here we go. Of truth, verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? <laughs> Love that. You preach against stealing, do you actually steal? You say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? It is written, God's name is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, the Bible says, if God so takes your talent, 
and pushes it into your giftings. God says, don't be the opposite of what you preach. You know, James says this. No, that's not what it says. Let me continue. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision uh, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what advantage then, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. Well, what if some of them were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness uh, nullify the faithfulness of God will by no means let God be true and everyone a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you uh, when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Well, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth is, abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may abound, that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? So what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside uh, and together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asp is under their lips. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped or shut up and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's the purpose of the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Notice what this guy was doing was taking this out of context and basically making it sound like Paul was saying, listen, you got to practice what you preach or else. No, this was a part of an extended argument on Paul's part that all are sinners. All have fallen short. All are against God. That all are under the law. All are declared to be sinners. They, it's all, it was part of an argument to basically level everybody and brand them to be sinners. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And here's the gospel. Because Paul was preaching the law in order to get to this point, to show everybody their need for a savior. For But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
What Pat just did here was turn this passage by taking Paul out of context here in Romans chapter 2. He's basically used God's law and then put the wrong the wrong solution forward. You do harder. You obey. You show yourself trustworthy. That was not Paul's point in Romans 2. He was showing everybody to be sinners so that he might show grace and show them Christ and him crucified for their sins. That's what's going on here. Pat, like so many other teachers, isn't teaching us the thoughts of God, even though he's got a Bible that he's quoting from all over the place. He's, the thoughts he's teaching you are thoughts that are contrary to what the Word says and contrary to what God has said. Very, very dangerous stuff here. James says there's a special place in hell for those who preach the gospel but don't live it. It's scary. In other words, if I'm living a fake life, hell is hotter for me than the drug dealer out there killing kids. That's what the Bible says. And the way you don't live a fake life is by confessing you're a sinner in need of a savior instead of proclaiming yourself righteous and obedient when you're not. You know why? Because much is given, much is required. The greater the anointing, the greater the responsibility. Oh, you're not getting this yet, are you? Oh, I get it. It's not from God, but I get it. It's, these are not God's thoughts. These contradict God's thoughts in his word. Oh, I get it. There's nothing more powerful than people that are gifted yet broken. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore unto God's... There's nothing more powerful, no one more powerful than Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who was raised again on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate for our sins, raised for our justification. His mighty hand, and he may lift you up in due time. A broken, gifted person carries with them an understanding for pain. A broken, gifted person never relies on just talent, but on God's spirit. They're teachable. They're moldable. You know what I've learned? <laughs> if you ever think you're great, let's kill you. Because you're going to turn to dirt. We're all going to end up dirt. But if you go ahead and say, God, I'm dying to me, then he can take that dirt in this life. And begin to mold it because he's the potter. Isaiah said, does the potter tell the pottery tell the potter how to make it? No. Church, is this making sense? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 6, God is, make, is able to make all grace, all caris, all charis abound to you. So that in all things, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. God says, I'll give you whatever you want. Here's the problem. Okay, everybody look at me. You never ask. It just never happened. Really, the Bible says God will give me whatever I want. No. Asked him. What do you want me to do, God? Did you give me my Romans 12 gifts? Yep, when you got saved. Something in there, grace, love, something. Administration, management. Okay, um, gifts of spirit. I want to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. Ask for it. He'll give it to you. Lord, I want to flow and gifts of healing okay go minister to hospitals and see what happens um lord i'm feeling the call of god in the ministry Ooh. you sure
Psalm 51 verse 16 says it best. This is David in his worst moment, his worst hour, his moment of falling. This is my favorite in the Message Bible. It says this. Going through the motions, it don't please you, Lord. A flawless performance is nothing to you. (laughs) I love this. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. Okay. Oh, man, this guy has a bad uh, habit of quoting from the message as if that's a reliable paraphrase, and it's not. Oh, this is a mess. This is such a mess. You're not hearing the inspired thoughts of God. You're not. Not in this sermon. Stop, 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 stop. Okay, this is so good. This is so stinking good. I love this. Holy cow, if I was Hindu, watch. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. In other words, it's not till you come to the end of yourself as the beginning of God. My pride was shattered. Really, where does the Bible clearly teach that you the coming to the end of yourself is the beginning of God? Where does it say that? And I went from la 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 la, looking all good, handbells, ding dong ding. <laughs> anyway, so suddenly I moved from this stage, sounding like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and I walked through some storms. And suddenly I went into help me, Pastor Eric, help me, help me, help me. And suddenly I went to my knees and sing that song we sang. And when I got to this place, heaven looked down. Because my Bible says, I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. God says, when you got your heart shattered, I went, oh, there you are. You used to be over there. Then you walked a bridge called adversity. Glory to glory. There's always a bridge called adversity. I took you from your talent to your gifting. Let me breathe on you, my spirit. And that's why you go from worshiping to praying in the Holy Ghost. You go from worshiping. Is this making sense today? No, not at all. This isn't making any biblical sense at all. This is the most convoluted, dumb thing I've heard. Well, in the last hour and 15 minutes. Before that, it was the emergent guys. Here I am. Take me. Would you stand with me? Yeah, no. No, we're done. (laughs) Folks, open Bible. He was quoting God's word all over the place. And yet, you were not hearing the inspired thoughts in the from the inspired word of god god's word contains words and those words were specifically written to convey specific thoughts that were inspired by god you didn't hear any of that you heard stuff snipped here you heard stuff snipped there woven into a tapestry of deceit of thoughts that were not biblical thoughts, thoughts that were not God's thoughts. If they were God's thoughts, he would have handled the text correctly and he would have pointed you to Christ. Instead, you got this bizarre hodgepodge 
of things that just don't even make any sense at all, ultimately ending with, you know, if if you are a talented, gifted thing, then you are on Satan's radar, and but be humble, and I can't even put it all together. It's ridiculous. And it was all about you, not about what Christ has done for you. It's ultimately how you can tell the difference. If somebody's correctly handling God's word, are they pointing you to you or are they pointing you to Christ? That's the difference. And if you believe the Bible is inspired and you believe the Bible is inerrant and you're attending a church where the pastor isn't teaching you the inspired, inerrant thoughts that are conveyed in the scriptures, but it's pointing you to you, you got a big problem. You need to find another church. You need to find a church where the pastor is going to point you to Christ and is going to exalt and glorify Christ. The good news, folks, is this. Christ died for your sins. He calls us to repentance and trust and faith in him. As he declares in the passage that we just read in Romans 2 and 3, none is righteous. That means you and me, everybody. None is righteous. And none will be declared righteous in the sight by obeying God's law. Christianity is not a religion based upon your performance. It is a religion dependent upon the perfect performance of Jesus Christ and his sinless life for you and his vicarious and penal substitutionary death on the cross for you and your sins and the free gift of salvation and the free gifts given of the Holy Spirit so that you can love and serve your neighbor because we are set free in Christ to love and to serve our neighbor. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And those works can be as simple as changing diapers, cleaning snotty noses, commuting to work every day and working in a cubicle, collecting trash, or even doing heart surgery. Those are the good works that Christ has called us to, loving and serving our neighbor with the talents and gifts that he's he's given us. Where we are. And it's all to his glory. And here's the other thing. Folks, you're sitting there going, well, Chris, that kind of sounds, well, do, is there, is there, does God, do we get any rewards for the doing? Listen, what does Jesus say? When you have done all that you are called to do, say to yourself, I am an unworthy servant because I've only done my duty. Ultimately, at the end of the day, Whatever you've done for your neighbor is what you were called to do. That's your duty to do. And ultimately, you're just an unworthy servant because you've only done your duty. Our works are not meritorious, but we are set free in Christ to love and serve our neighbor. And it all comes to the forgiveness of sins and what Christ has done for us on the cross. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Your pastor needs to focus your eyes on Jesus not on you. 
All right. I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means that we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us financially and partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, Join Our Crew. The other says, Donate. The Join Our Crew button, and when you click on that, you go through some screens, you sign up and to pay a mere $6.95 a month. It's nothing. It's pittance. It's hardly anything at all. It's a week's supply of macaroni and cheese for a college student. That's what we're talking about here. But it means the world to us because when we get to 1,000 listeners, and we're 60% of the way there now, we get to 1,000 listeners who've joined our crew, then that means that uh, on a monthly basis, we will have the minimum amount of money we need in order to pay all of our bills, plain and simple. So uh, join our crew, and when you get do, you get access to our cove. That's our way of saying thank you to you, growing treasure trove of theological resources to help you go deeper in God's Word, Christ-centered theology, and apologetics. Good stuff. Of course, if you'd like to fill in the blank as to how much you would like to uh, contribute to our uh, radio program, you can do so by visiting, uh, clicking on, on the Donate button on our website, Donate button, and you can fill in the amount, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to... Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Thank you.